Good to see all of you guys. It's, the weather is starting to get nice. It's pretty outside, but it's still pretty humid. Um, but it's good to see you. All of your smiling faces. This is our announce, our, our volunteer list, and it is where you sign up to help out with Kid Vespers and with nursery and with cooking and all that kind of stuff. We've almost filled this completely out. There are some spaces that we need some help on. So if you're new with us, don't worry about it. If you're a villager, we could use you in one of these spaces. If you don't feel comfortable being in the nursery or cooking or or leading uh, little kids and kid vespers, um, tell me that you'd like to do something, just not on this list, and I'm sure I can find something for you to do. I promise you I can do that. Um, so I'm going to pass this around. And if you're new with us, we've got three by five cards in there. Give us your email address. Tell us what's going on in your life. Um, tell us your favorite color. Whatever you want. We don't have anything on there, so you can tell us whatever you want. Put it in the offering. We're happy to have you. I'm going to send this around. Pass it to the next person. I don't mind if you get up and move it around. Make sure everybody gets it. All those good kind of things. Um, so let's pray to focus our brains and such. Father in heaven, thank you so much for these good people, for their love for you. We come tonight in a lot of different, for a lot of different reasons. We're here because we think we're supposed to. We're here because we're looking to, to connect with people and connect with you. We're here because we just don't know about you, and we're trying to figure out if we believe Jesus. But we're here, and so we want to declare this space your kingdom. Holy Spirit, we want to ask for the courage to um, believe what's true and throw out what's just false. And Jesus, we, we ask that your peace and your kindness and your love would be on us, and that you would give us a courage to believe what's true. I ask that in your name. Amen. We are we're in a new series on Genesis. And if you have a kid who's from the age of 6 to 8, you can actually discuss the sermon with him because he or her because they're doing the same thing we are um, and they will for a little bit. But we're doing this series on Genesis. It's just the big events and some of the big people in Genesis. Um, and so... Rod kicked it off last week, and he talked about creation, and he had he had a lot of good points in his sermon. Um, I had to listen to it on the internet because I was doing Kid Vespers, but he had a lot of good points. But one of his important points, I thought, was that the one of the things you have to do when you're reading the uh, creation narrative is you have to um, put aside your own arrogance and the thought that you know what happened and how it happened and the other thing that he said that I thought was really important in that context was that when we begin to read the creation story and listen to it and as God is telling us how he created and explaining to his creatures we have to remember that we are his creatures and not the creator and we'll kind of see how how that becomes a problem for us anyway so tonight my job is to talk about how everything goes bad I get to talk about the fall of man. So we're going to start in Genesis, and um, I'm going to hop around chapter 1 and 2. Genesis is the first book 
of the Old Testament. And then we're going to read chapter 3 and really find out what the, the curse is and all those good kind of things. Um, but when you decide to be a follower of Jesus, when you decide that you want to follow Jesus, what you will find out is that you continually have to go back to Genesis. Because in the beginning, we find what God intended. And we are now 2,000 years away from, or not 2,000, we're 2,000 years away from Jesus, and who knows how many years away from the garden, but we're a long, long time away from the garden. And it's easy to forget what God intended. And so what I want to do is help you see what God intended for you and I, and then how the curse slashed that, and then how Jesus changes that. And I just violated every preacher's rule to never tell you what I'm going to do, because now you all tune out. But anyway, let's start with what God established. I'm going to start Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Now Rod touched on this last week, but it's very important for you and I to understand that human beings are the only thing, person, thing that's alive, that's created in the image of God. So you and I bear God's image. So that means that we are like God. When you bear an image, you're like God. Now, to understand what sin and the curse has done to us, we have to understand what is given to us by image-bearing. So I want to quickly read to you um, chapter, chapter 2 and the account of how Adam was created. So chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and the water and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God forms man and then he breathes into him. God's breath is what gives us life. Now, when I look at my children, what I see a lot of times as my children are growing is I see my father on their face for a while, then my mom, then my wife, then me, then the uncles and aunts. You know, as they, as they grow older, you begin to see them kind of morphing into different people in your family. You see the genetics. But what I see more than anything is Sue and me. And what I'm struck with is I gave them life. Now, God is the one who gave me a power to give them life, but they, I brought them about. Sue and I made them. They bear my image. Now, there's something about that is that they're actually mine. So the first idea of image bearing is that we belong to God like my kids belong to me. And so the first thing we're given in image bearing is a family name. Okay. Now you'll look at the Old Testament and you'll see that names mean something, right? In my family, the Sipa name means something. Now there's a lot of things that it means, but when I look at my brothers and me and what we do, and I look at my parents, I realize that the Sipa name means 
But one of the things means hospitality. All of us are very hospitable. We always have an open door, and people are always at everybody's house. Same with my parents. And the other thing is, the Seepin family name means you take care of people. I've seen my parents do that. I've done that. My brothers have done that. But also, it means that you look at baseball stats in the newspaper. There's a whole, if you think about your own family, there are things that your family just does, that that is what a, you know, a McConnell is, or that is what a Seepin is, or that is what a Brunson is, and you go down the line. There's, it's passed on to you. We get a family name from God. He breathed life into us. Now, what that gives us in our family name is holiness. See, God can't walk with his creatures if they're not holy. So one of the things that comes with being part of God's family is being holy. Now, holiness, a lot of times it's hard to explain because we don't go around saying, hey, I'm holy, or he's not very holy. That's not kind of how we use our language. But holiness means three things. That Maybe this will help paint the picture for you of what it is. Number one, holiness means sacred. So if something's holy, it's sacred. Number two, a holy thing is right. It's not wrong. Okay, A holy thing is right. The third thing about holiness is that there is sanity to it. Okay, So if we talk about holiness, what we inherited from God is a rightness, a sacredness, and a saneness. That's what came with the family name. Okay? So the first thing we get from image bearing is a family name. Second thing we get from image bearing, or bearing God's image, is we get a family job. Okay? Let me read to you a little further in chapter 1, verse 28 of Genesis. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit, every seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. We're given a job. Our job is to fill the earth, to rule the earth, and to subdue the earth. That is what image bearers do. So that's our, that's our job. Now, I, I've always kind of wished that my, that I, I guess more importantly, when I was young, I didn't want to inherit any kind of job from my parents. Okay, I didn't want to be a counselor, and that's what they were. But now at 41, I kind of am starting to think that it would be really nice to just inherit the family business. Now, I wish it weren't as complicated as counseling. Like maybe like, you know, making tiddlywinks would be an easier job for me to inherit. But, tiddlywinks, come on now, that's funny, right? <laughs> Mike will laugh at me. That's good. But, but as I get older, I want to have a family job. Now, why would I want to inherit the family business? Because if I inherited the family business, that means I'd be working alongside my dad and I would get it and I would understand what I was supposed to do and it wouldn't be so scary out there because dad would have taught me how to do it, right? I want the family job. God in image bearing gives us a job. A job to subdue, a job to rule, and a job to fill up the earth, be fruitful and multiply. 
Now, we have a family name. We have a family job with image bearing. There's one more thing. Chapter 2, second part, well, I'll just start in verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock. God had brought all these animals before him, the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason the man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The second, or the third thing that we inherit in being an image bearer of God is family ties, or relationship with one another. Now, you have heard me preach on this passage a lot, so if you've been around, you know I talk about marriage and all that kind of stuff out of this passage. I'm not going to talk about that. I just want you to note that what we inherit is intimacy with each other, relationship that doesn't involve conflict and shame. So yes, there's intimacy between man and woman who bear God's image, but there's this idea there that we inherit family, relationship, and there isn't any kind of brokenness in it. Okay, So we get the family name, we get the family job, and we get community as image bearers of God. That's what we have in the garden. Okay, That's what God intended, for us to have a name, for us to have a job, and for us to be in community together. It's good stuff. Now, here comes the bad part of the story, the story that all of us live under. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, There's this dialogue between the serpent and Eve. And you see, what we're going to find out is is that Eve doesn't necessarily get all of the information. So we're going to jump back to chapter 2. At least she's misquoting it. And I'm going to read verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. doesn't say anything about touching. Now, the Garden of Eden literally means hedged-in delights. Okay? That's the literal translation. Eden means hedged-in delights. Now, I just saw a pregnant lady somewhere over here. There she is. Pregnant ladies start nesting. I had a pregnant lady twice. And 
they they like to do crazy things like when they're really pregnant like when julie was pregnant with jesse like nine months she built an entire bunk bed from scratch because you know and my wife at eight months was you know painting and and scraping because you got to build a nursery right and a nursery really is for a baby a hedged in delight right we have cribs and because we want the baby to roll out. We have all these safety things. We have little plastic things we put in the plugs. We're thinking about not, you know, not allowing our children to get into the poisonous stuff. And we're, we're, we create a, a safety place in our house and our nurseries are really safe, right? It's the hedged in delight. Now, you can't make it completely safe. Once you put the baby in there, it gets older and older to the point where you walk in on your child and the stroller is inside of the crib. And you ask, how did the stroller get in there? And they crawl out of the crib and take the stroller out and then put it back in and crawl out back into the crib, right? All of a sudden, the hedged-in delights are not so safe anymore, right? You you need to create some more safety. Well, the Garden of Eden is a nursery. Do not think that God intended to have us hang out in the Garden of Eden forever. The Garden of Eden was the place of training. The Garden of Eden is where we understand our name and our job and how to relate to each other so that we can go and subdue and rule and fill the earth. Okay? So inside of God's nursery, he put one thing. Now, that we should do, and that is to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when two-year-olds... Sort of, I don't know, I've been some distance between when kids walk, but somewhere between one and two they walk, and before that they're crawling. But one of the things that my mom used to do that was striking to me is that when my kids would come over and they were little and they hadn't really started, well, they just started crawling around and walking, is that she would take them around to everything in the house that she did not want them to touch, and she would put their hand on it, and she would say no, and then she would flick their hand. Right, so that they would know that that's what happens when you touch that thing. And then they would go touch it, and she's very disciplined, so she'd flick their hand a lot harder. And eventually my kids didn't touch anything, and nobody else's kids who came touched anything, because that's mom for you. But this is kind of what God is doing with Adam and Eve in the garden, is he's saying, he's taking them to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he's saying no, and lightly flicking their hand. Now, somehow Adam didn't get the message very well, because Eve's misquoting it. So I'm, I don't know if God talked a lot to Eve about this, or Eve got it from Adam, but she's already confused about what's going on with this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 4 of chapter 3, it says, You will certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if you're an image bearer of God, what are you already? Like God. So one of the things, that the first and most effective thing that Satan does to us is says God is not trustworthy and he isn't giving you what you need and want. Like he's withholding from you. So that when you start thinking, God is withholding from me, God is keeping something from me, then Satan is, you're in a dialogue with the enemy. When you begin to think that God is holding something from you, you're in a dialogue with the enemy. And now, 
Satan has set Eve up. And it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said to the the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, it's, I mean, think about nursery and little children. This is definitely that kind of experience. They did something that they weren't supposed to do, and then... We just kind of make the blame go all the way down. Now, God is a good parent. A lot of times when we are faced with our own, our kids' disobedience, um, or anybody's disobedience, there's a lot of angst to just dealing with it. You know, I don't know if it's an American thing or a human thing, but we really want to talk about things a lot before we really get down to the consequences. But it seems that God, He's just, there were consequences and now I'm going to lay them out on you. He doesn't, He's, he just starts off. All right, so we got down to the last person to blame, so I'll start with the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The poor poor snake right the snake i don't i don't know why the snake got this curse but here's the thing the intention in this curse is that every time you and i every time the people of the old testament see a snake we are to remember what happened in the garden snakes are reminders to us for the rest of our history that something bad happened in the garden, that the curse and sin happened way back in the garden. But the second part of this curse is it says that the man is going to crush the snake's head, right? And the snake is going to strike the man. The second thing that the snake, a snake represents for us is a messianic promise, right? Jesus on the cross destroys death, crushes the snake's head, but the cross kills Jesus. Every time that you and I see a snake, what we're to remember is that Jesus died for that curse. So the snake becomes a reminder to us of the cross. And you'll even see this kind of played out in the Old Testament if you read it. But the thing you need to remember about the curse on the snake is that it is a promise to us that God will deliver us and that he did deliver us. So when you see a snake, remember the curse and remember Jesus. You're supposed to remember. 
Second thing, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Okay. First, family name. The curse removes a partnership from us, okay? So now that Adam and Eve have sinned, they are no longer holy, right? They're, the thing that they inherited, holiness, is now tarnished. So if holiness is rightness, corrupt, uh, uh, rightness, rightness, not corruptness, but rightness and sanity and sacredness, then what we now have from the curse is we're insane, we're no longer saying we're profane instead of sacred and we're corrupt okay so what's happened is we're no longer in communion with god because of the curse at least at this point in time so the first so we've lost a partnership we're no longer having god help us develop who we are and what he intends for us in developing our character our character has been destroyed we've become unholy the second thing is our vocation, right? We are out there ruling, subduing, and filling the earth. But Jesus is, I mean, God is partnering with us. And I think in Genesis, there's a quick picture of this. So let me read this to you. Chapter 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. This is a partnership. God brings the animals to Adam. Adam names it. I think that's a picture of what it would look like for us to rule and subdue and multiply and fill the earth we have a partnership god's not just going to say go on out there and do it on your own right there was a partnership his intention was to train us and to send us out and to do it with us there was a way of doing it okay we no longer have that partnership right adam is now toiling against the ground and the ground is resisting him because god's not there to help out god's removed himself okay The third one is the family ties that the curse affects. Marriage, it said, had no shame. Marriage had no conflict. Now, because of the curse, what we find inside of relationship is a conflict and this drive to rule and control one another. So when God removes himself from that because of sin, the partnership being gone, all of a sudden, with no Jesus, we're trying to rule each other. We're trying to control each other. We're trying to get one up on each other. Okay? So the curse attacks our image, and it attacks our image 
in those three areas, in our name and our job and our relationship with one another. And really what it does is it removes God as our partner in all of those things. Now, we're still left with the name, but we can't be holy. We're still left with the job, but it's impossible because it resists us. And we're still left with marriage and relationship with each other, but now we're trying to control each other, and there's a ton of shame in our relationships. Okay? So that's kind of depressing. Verse 21 of chapter 3 says, Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing God, good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, what you find is it's kind of like little babies being kicked out of the nursery with no mom and dad. And I don't have time, but I would suggest that you read Cain and Abel because even though human beings are kicked out, the next story is about the two brothers, and one brother kills another. Cain kills Abel. It, before man has killed each other, God, you can see, is still around. But God completely withdraws himself once we murder each other. And so it's like little babies being thrown out of the nursery, and we don't have a partner, so we don't know how to figure out our name, we don't know how to figure out our job, and we don't know how to get along. But if you remember the snake, the snake says, the curse on the snake says something is going to be done about it. It points forward to Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 explains exactly what that is. So I would like to read that to you. I'm going to start in the middle of verse 44. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being and the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And, is, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. There will not, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So, 
When Adam and Eve disobeyed, that the sin, the consequence of sin was death, but the law continually tells us what sin is, is what he's saying there. So the law informs us of what we've done wrong. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Here's the thing. If you and I decide to become followers of Jesus, if you and I decide to to put ourselves in the line of Jesus, something changes. You see, when you and I are bearing Adam's image, we're broken and the partnership is gone. There's nothing with God. But when you and I agree to follow Jesus, we actually bear a new image. We bear Jesus' image. Okay? And when you and I bear Jesus' image, what happens is, when we decide to follow Jesus, is the partnership for name, for vocation, and for family changes. Because you see, Jesus says, I will help you restore the family name. I will help you do the job of the kingdom. I will help you, and I will remove the ruling and the shame within your relationships. So when we follow Jesus, what's happening is, is that the curse is being erased and there's this restorative process that's happening. And what Paul is saying is that it's going to hap- it's going to be finished at some point. It's going to be all done. But right now, you and I are in this process of understanding what it means to be holy. Understanding what it means to be people who rule in a godly way, people who take care of an earth and its people in a godly way people who relate in a godly way. And Jesus is the one who helps us do that. Now, verse 58 says that we're supposed to stand firm, not give up, because what we do is not in vain. For Adam, it says, and basically for mankind, we work our butts off to plant something, and all we get is thorns and thistles. I don't know about you, but nine times out of ten, the projects that I do physically, mentally, emotionally, they never work out the way I want them to. I have never had anything happen perfectly. There's been those moments where I imagine that this is about as close to perfect as I can possibly get, right? But what Paul is saying is, stand firm because what we do in Christ is not in vain. We are actually restoring something. Now, go back to that image bearing breath thing, right? God creates Adam and he breathes into Adam. He marks Adam. He gives him his name. Well, those words that are used for breathing life into human beings are the same words that we use for the Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit. talks about the breath of God. Um, I'll just start in verse 13 of chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession 
to the praise of his glory. So here, here's the thing. When you decide to follow Jesus, God breathes on you the Spirit of God. And that Spirit, God's Spirit, marks you. And so when Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead and sends the Spirit of God to us, what he's saying is, I, God is saying to us is, I am re-entering into a partnership with you. And it's a partnership that's never going to end. It's a partnership that you can no longer break because all of the consequences that have happened from the garden, death, destruction, they've all now been taken up on Jesus. And so there is no longer a need for the separation. And so if we believe, we're marked and we're given God. And so now, when you look at answering the question that, that Jesus says in, in multiple Gospels, be holy like I'm holy, you have a partner to teach you how to be holy. When you try to begin to think, what am I supposed to do in the kingdom of God? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to take care of my kids? How am I supposed to do all this stuff? You now have a partner in the Holy Spirit who walks with you. So, as a disciple of Christ, it is very, very important that you and I return to the garden all the time. Because it is very, very hard to remember that we hold Jesus' name and what he, or God's name and what he intended for us. We get busy making dinner. We get busy trying to pay our bills. We get busy trying to figure out who we're going to marry. We get busy trying to figure out what we're going to do when we retire. We get busy thinking about what we're going to do, you know, when we graduate, and we have all this anxiety in, in our lives and all this busyness, and we forget. Life is busy, and we forget. We have to repeatedly go back to the garden and ask the question as disciples, what did God intend? And what he intended was for you to have his name, for you to have his job, and for you to have relationships that reflect him. That's what he intended. And so he gives that to you with Jesus. Well, you got a time for me? 6-11. I need to pray. Father, thank you so much for this community. Thank you that there are with me on a journey to restoration and in a partnership with you. God, help us do it. Jesus, show us the way. Spirit, give us the courage. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. It's a couple ways tonight to respond. Number one, black chair back there. Sinner's chair. If you need to be prayed for, sit in that chair. Someone will pray for you. If it's your sin or somebody else's sin or you just need some kind of healing, whatever it is, sit in that chair. Sit there for a while because you can see we're all facing forward. We may not see you. Someone will come back and pray for you. Number two, offering. If you are visiting with us, we're happy to have you. Otherwise, this is how the village keeps the lights on. This is how it pays pastors. And this is how it buys food. So if you would just put the last basket underneath, or just put the basket underneath the last chair, whatever, however you do that, figure it out. The other way to respond is through communion. On the night that, that Christ was betrayed, he took the bread, took a loaf of bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take, eat, in remembrance of me.
And at the end of that Passover meal, he took the wine and he held it up and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the new covenant. Not the blood of the law and the rules, but the blood that pays the price for our sin and gives us a partnership with Jesus. If you can come and break the bread and dip the juice in and say publicly, I stand with Christ and his broken body and his blood poured out for me, then please come up while we sing and take communion. Let's respond to God's word together.